Hello and welcome back to the Historical Humans Podcast. We're on lucky episode number 13 and we've got a doozy for you. We're going to be talking about the Beringian Land Bridge that connected Siberia to Alaska. And uh, I think without further ado, I'll introduce my fellow co-host here. I'm with Cullum Coleman and Gwendolyn Allen. My name's Justin Woods and Cullum, do you just want to jump right in let's let's go and let's talk about beringia baby all right so uh beringia is this uh combination of just land and sea uh it's just a sort of territorial space between russia and canada it stretches all the way uh from siberia across the bering strait through alaska and into canada so alaska is com- almost completely consumed within uh, the Bringy, that's why it's Russia to Canada. We did not just sink Alaska into the ocean, we promise you. <laughs> I was about to say, are you an Alaska denier? <laughs> Long no. live Beringia. Uh, <laughs> no. I'm a firm believer in the uh, in the Allens theory of, uh, of how people populated uh, the Americas, because that's what Beringia is. It's a, it's a it's a theoretical and scientifically proven space uh, for how people crossed from Asia to uh, the Americas to f- initially populate the Americas many thousands of years ago without the use of Allens. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically uh, so, the doorway into the new world. Yeah. yeah. So uh, give you a bit of a geographical boundaries for this uh Territory Beringia is everything between the Lena River in Russia and Mackenzie River in Canada, uh, and it goes from about uh, the 72 degree north latitude in the Chukchi Sea to the southern tip of the Kamchatka Peninsula in Kamchatka. Russia. Kamchatka. I said Kamchatka. that. <laughs> yeah. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Uh, this uh, this area was once. Uh, mostly if not entirely land during the Pleistocene epoch uh, also known as the ice age about uh, one and three quarter million years ago to about 10,000 years ago and uh, fun fact about the ice age despite the name it had warm and cold periods <laughs> wait you mean the Pleistocene had a lot of different variable uh, climates well you know it is you know it is one million seven hundred fifty thousand, and you know nine hundred and ninety years ago. But also to the fact of that, it only ended about ten thousand years ago. People don't realize how quick or how recently that was. In the terms of yeah. like North America, that's when the Great Lakes formed. The Great Lakes are some of the newest large bodies of water on the planet. Yeah. Yep. They're geographic babies. They are. They're dirty babies, but they're babies. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, it's in the last cold period of the of the ice age that we get those glaciers uh, that the ice age is famous for. That you know carved their way through the Rocky Mountains and you know dug in a lot of those uh, Great Lakes. <laughs> and it's a uh, uh, it's these glaciers that actually create uh, the Bering, uh, the uh, uh, Beringia out of what is today the Bering Strait, because they absorbed all this water, and the water t- level level of the planet dropped by about three hundred feet. God, 
That's that's uh, crazy. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah, this is yeah. This is a base this is effectively the uh the inverse of what we are doing to the planet now times like ten. <laughs> Oops. Except humans didn't cause this one. Yeah. But That'd this change cool. in the weather and this freezing, it it sucked up so much water into ice that pieces of land started emerging and that's where the Bering Strait actually became this large grassy land and it effectively connected the two major continents because you still had water to the north and to the south it was just this tiny little isthmus that connected the two bridges of land yeah yeah it was a thousand miles north to south too this is not a small thing this like there's a reason the southern border is the tip of uh Kamchatka. Kamchatka, yeah. Okay, the tip of that peninsula. That is a very long peninsula. And it is, so this is a thousand, this is a thousand miles wide. Uh, just highway for people to rock, walk across full of grass and game and other little things that, you know, naturally begin to form when you have a massive stretch of land. But the crazy thing too that they don't really mention a lot is the weather and the temperature of this area wasn't that far off from what current Alaska is like. During the summer, it would get up to 46, 47 degrees Fahrenheit, which is well above freezing and a pretty comfortable weather when you're you went surrounded by ice and everything else is frozen and you're in an area that is not frozen, it's going to feel pretty good. <laughs> still it's very like cold when you just but... get out of winter and you have that like one really nice like it would be a cold spring day but you're like oh time to break out the shorts that might yeah. just be a midwestern thing so good can, comparatively it's like 45 degrees <laughs> like break out the shorts the tank top let's go yeah, and uh, just for those of you who use Celsius out there and are thinking 45 degrees, that's boiling. Uh, we're all going to die in the <laughs> desert. Uh, for those of you who use Celsius, this is uh, this is just over seven degrees Celsius. So this is still a very uh, a very chill environment, uh, just not freezing to death. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that's the important part. Yeah. But the cool thing is, once this land started emerging from the water, you started seeing a proliferation of plants, animals, and then eventually people. And, you know, when a new piece of land opens up and you see a bunch of animals and a bunch of tasty plants, you're going to go, huh, maybe I should go over there and check it out. Yep. Yeah, and this whole process, this didn't happen overnight. This is a 27,000-year process. period where this bridge is open and stable for people to cross this is 38,000 to 11,000 years ago is about the time when this bridge uh forms and can actually start sustaining life and people just sort of begin to move around on it yeah and it's interesting too because you see people on both sides of the bridge share a lot of common cultural items a lot of cultural a lot of traditions a lot of language groups and we'll get a little bit more into it later, but they also share a lot of DNA. Yeah, and, that's uh, such when, a smile right there. You're like, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Let's get there. This is my when, area. This is what when, really gets when, me going. Yeah. <laughs> one of the other uh, one of the other fun things about it too is uh, uh, that we'll get into more detail later. The people living on the uh, on the old world side, on the Siberian Russian side of of the Strait, once it reforms across Beringia. 
knew about the people living in what is now Alaska. They knew like, like before Chris Columbus and all the rest of it, they just sort of, yeah, there's people over there. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, they're there. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the, the Alaskans also like traveled that and would trade. So it's not like they were, you know, mysterious people. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Old world, new world contact <laughs> goes on for a while in Siberia. Like you just you keep learning that it goes um, much further uh, before Christopher Columbus, that jackass. Uh, but <laughs> to move past that, there are also uh, there are several islands that uh, remain of the uh, Beringia Land Bridge, um, specifically called the Diomede Islands, um, and then other islands that I do not know how to pronounce of St. Paul and St. George. Yeah. Uh, Pribilof. Pribilof. Cool. I would not have said that. Kind of a cool fact about the, the Diomedes though, is (laughs) they are the closest geographically, um, bordering areas between the United States and Russia. They're only about 1.2 miles apart from each other. And on, uh, one side you still have native inhabitants, but on the other side they got kicked off and is a military installation. I believe it was Russia who kicked the people off, but I could be mistaken there. I was say that sounds like something Russia and the United States would do. So I'd be more surprised that not everyone got kicked off. But they're quite literally smack dab in the middle, like the closest border. You could literally see Russia from America, unlike a certain former. Uh, vice presidential candidates who claim they could, but they live f- 500 miles away. But you know, I'm literally we just about to about make that joke <laughs> in that voice and an impression, but we I won't talk. do it. We, we don't Bye. talk about her, don't invite the crazy onto this channel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, close enough. Uh, there's the also uh, St. Lawrence and King's and King Island as well. I forgot to add that in there, so yeah, yeah, uh. Yes, that's a little bit of the his- that's a little bit of the history of the landmass itself. Um, and there is a today uh, the United States government uh, has designated uh, Beringia to be a natural uh, a national monument. Uh, they did that in seven in nineteen seventy eight, and then two years later in nineteen eighty, uh, the U.S. created the Bering Land Bridge Nat- National Preserve um, to. Uh, uh, to better preserve some of the uh, very unique geography that remains from the Bering Strait, because it is a it is a weird minefield out there of just seemingly random and erratic uh, physical features. <laughs> yeah, you mean like the the mountains or the volcanic fields or the rolling tundra or the I Mars. like the Mars. Yeah. 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 The- yeah. Which, for those playing along at home, are shallow volcanic depressions. Yeah. Ooh, you also have the thermocast lakes, with our lakes formed from a depression of the thawing. Uh, yeah. It just creates, yeah, basically, as as the ice in the ground melts, it just creates this sinkhole of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, my personal favorite are the pingos. That sounds which is what happens eff- effectively when as ice moves across the earth it just rips something up and shifts and shoots it upward into a giant spike <laughs> um these 90 these uh 90 meter tall just 
mounds of just sharpened earth. <laughs> oh, we like when the earth fights back. <laughs> yeah. But then, even now, in current day, the Bering Strait is only about 53 miles wide at its narrowest. So, like, mm -hmm. the, it still isn't super wide. I mean, some water's gotten through, so a lot of the bridge is still roughly there. But, yeah, it's it's not quite its former glory. There, there, it's, it's now the Bering Strait instead of the Beringia Land Bridge. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, not quite swimmable distance, but, you know. Boats can make it fairly easily. <laughs> also, you know, I highly wouldn't recommend swimming in the Bering Strait because it mixes the Arctic with the Pacific, and that water's freezing. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying that everything <laughs> else won't kill you. I'm just saying the distance alone, not quite swimmable. Oh. I mean, there are people that do swim in the Arctic. It's not something you should do, but it is something Ooh. you can do if you have the right preparation and go a short distance all right mm -hmm. so who's gonna swim the 53 miles through the <laughs> not me uh <laughs> i i do not have enough layers of fat to keep my body warm so we're not doing that justin go go join the polar bear club at lake michigan you want to freeze yourself to death <laughs> I've done the polar plunge. Dude, the polar plunge is terrifying because that's in Lake Michigan. Not only is it cold, but it's also dirty. Surprisingly, Michigan cold and it's full of lampreys is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, anyway, yes, back to the bearing. Yeah. Yes, so, the, uh, uh, the bearing straight. Uh, this is an idea of the of the existence of the strait. It's been around for a pretty long time. It's been around for about four hundred years as a as a scientific theory. <laughs> yeah. So you have uh, Fray uh, Jose de Acosta, which was a Spanish, or who was uh, a Spanish miss missionary yeah. um, back in 1590, uh, was the first known uh, written record suggesting the Beringia Land Bridge um, and questioned the origin of the population uh, in the New World, which was a very popular debate at the time. Um, and he believed that the land bridge uh, between Asia and North America still existed uh, and correctly theorized that hunter-gatherers followed animals across this land bridge from Asia into the New World. Um, and we'll see evidence of that as we go through um, different archaeological yeah. expeditions and things like that. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the funnier things about the original theory, theory that I saw is he appeared to have theorized that uh, not only was the land, was Beringia still in existence, but that Beringia was in California. <laughs> like Northern Swinging California, what we would call, uh, what we would call today, you know, uh, Oregon. <laughs> You know, it's just geography was hard back then. You you couldn't always trust the maps. Also, Alaska's fucking huge. So, like, you, you, you don't think that there's this massive place all the way up there, but it's just, it goes and it goes. Yeah. And so but, that was, uh, but, you know, it's, he was right that, you know, there would be a bridge. It's just very wrong about where and how long it would last. <laughs> But then we and, get... you know, there's there, there's still a little bit there, so it wasn't incredibly yeah. uh, wrong. Oh, but yeah, it was we... incredibly wrong, especially when you're working from uh, the, uh, you know, the sort of 
I guess, Renaissance uh, Christian perspective of the world where everything has to happen in the last 10,000 years or else. <laughs> but hey, they moved it to 10,000. Last time I heard it was like, what, like 6,000 or something? I don't know. I'm being generous with these people. <laughs> it's 4,000. It's real. It's, real. Uh, it's not 4,000. It's, it's at least six. It's, it, it, has to be, it has to be more than 4,000 by virtue of the fact that they, you know, that like Moses yeah. <laughs> makes it more than 4,000 by himself alone. Regardless, but, they're, they're wrong in general. Uh, we also have the Bering and Cook expeditions that followed this. Uh, they were the voyages um, in 17... 17- 1741. The Bering voyages. They're separate from the Cook ones. Cook yes. comes second. Oh, okay. Uh, Bering is uh, Bering is the guy who gives the strait its name because he was the guy who got there first. <laughs> Vitas Bering, a Danish explorer. Yeah. He's commissioned by the Russian Tsar Peter the Great. Yeah. Seems pretty great if he's commissioning explorations. I love those, but it was led by a Danish person. Yeah, they, it was commissioned they, by a Russian. Well, the, the, Span, the Spanish exploration that found America was led by an Italian. You <laughs> commissioned Columbus the better was hired sailors. by the Spanish crown. He was an Italian. <laughs> that Italy, is, that is something I forget consistently. <laughs> <laughs> Spanish, Italian, I don't know. But I think the purpose of it was to just map the boundaries of Siberia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is, uh, some maps had already indicated the existence of Alaska, so it's kind of just to confirm those things. Yeah, it was it was set up to confirm it and to determine exactly how far uh, Russia went. As you know, some maps, you know, these these are all maps of Russia's domain and the surrounding territories. You know, some of them show Alaska, some of them don't. Does Russia con- control Alaska? Is that part of Russia? Is that something that's not there at all? What the hell is this? Yeah. Because we don't have no diplomatic relations with these people. <laughs> but yet you have trade with these people because, you know, Alaskan peoples had been crossing the strait for years. And so trade existed um, between them and the Russians in the uh, Chachi Peninsula. I don't know if I'm saying that right. We have Chukchi. no idea. It's, it's, it's okay, Russian. Cool. <laughs> yeah, but, it's, you know, so that was the uh, that was the purpose of these expeditions that basically confirmed that hey you could probably pretty easily cross at this point and <laughs> saying then- it's how we're already doing it with you know vessels that aren't major seafaring vessels like we think of them you know today with these massive ships with several masts designed to get rolled by storms these okay are but alaskan ships. canoes are beautifully oh, made oh, they're beautifully all made. incredible incredible the, the canoe, uh, canoes are beautifully yeah. made and is a, a good work of artisanship and craftsmanship there it's just it's not designed to exactly sail out into the <laughs> middle of nowhere and take a storm well that, it's true but like they were smarter it gets the than job that. done it does a it does a really they good were, job they were smarter than to bother trying for that but yeah then we have my good old buddy captain james cook which we did do a Historical Humans Explains episode on. We've done a lot of things about Captain Cook. And he was an English explorer, a British, and in 1778, he provided detailed maps of the Alaskan coast and was the second explorer. Can you name the first one (laughs) to confirm the existence of Alaska? Except this man spread the news of Alaska to Europe. AKA outside of Russia, because Russia yeah. wasn't very known yeah. to Russia. 
Russia didn't like to share. Russia didn't really care. It wasn't considered a major discovery to the Russians. It was more just we confirmed what we already knew that there's something over there. Uh, it's not us, so go away. <laughs> Russia being the introvert of Europe at the time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's Peter the Great. So Russia is currently uh, figuring out uh, what modernization is. <laughs> uh, they're in. They're in the process of trying to. They're in the process of trying to catch up to the rest of Europe uh, in terms of technology. Speak, damn it. <laughs> I was going to say this leads to the land bridge theory, which we've been basically talking about. Just that there was a, light, a wide plain that connected Asia to North America, Siberia to Alaska. And this is around the time that Americans started really coming into the picture around the 1800s. When yep. scientists and naturalists began looking at archaeology. Yep, yeah. Uh, basically, the, uh, the, the concept of North American archaeology became a thing uh, in the early proto-days of archaeology that it was. Um, this consisted of finding hills and blowing them up. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the best process. At least we um, were Heinrich Schliemann. Yep. And uh, in the process, uh, all these American, all, all these early archaeologists and naturalists uh, discovered something interesting. The Native Americans had been native to the Americas for a considerable period of time. <laughs> and it became increasingly impossible to deny that. <laughs> Which uh, I don't think they were very happy about, but yeah. Yeah. But they, they found a bit of evidence that showed that North America was populated from people from another continent and mm -hmm. that there may be more to this theory. Yeah. yeah, and for about, and they build up this body of knowledge and then around 1890 to 1925, this about 35 year period, everyone just stops. <laughs> there's like, people just like, there's no point going further. We don't have any, uh, any you know, data that expressly says, you know, you know, the Native Americans came from Asia or that there was this land bridge or any of that stuff, you know, how inconsiderate of them not to leave a sign written in English. <laughs> well, well, you know, during this time, they were also probably slightly distracted by some other things going on. Yeah, in the middle, there is World War One, but still, yeah. for the most for, for the most of this period, the uh, United States is not in particular turmoil. Uh, the economic collapse of the 1890s. Yeah. The economic... <laughs> like, like I said, not particular turmoil. It's America. We're at war or in a depression. We have two settings. <laughs> but to be fair, a lot of times these gaps in research and knowledge aren't for a lack of trying or a lack of want to. A lot of times, um, especially within archaeology, they won't continue looking at a site or investigating if they don't believe their research methods are up to par. Sometimes you pause to wait to let science catch up to you. Other times it could be funding. It could be just research base. Um, I don't think it's so much that people are just like, yeah, we're done. We're going to move along. I think it was more so either funding dried up, other things came up, or, yeah, they're just like, we're going to wait until we can figure this out a little yeah. bit better. Yeah, this was... Yeah, uh, they're, they're this politics. Was also, yeah, this was also about the time, too, that American archaeology was undergoing its uh, major face-over with Franz Boas. 
Oh, good yep. old daddy. Because uh, this is this is about the time that uh, he is establishing his uh, four field approach to archaeology. So archaeology is currently giving itself a methodological makeover during this time, and you know, in part two to the fact that North the current style of North American archaeology from like the 19th century had kind of stalled out on what it could answer. Yeah. And so it was like, it's currently undergoing this makeover. Yeah. But luckily, uh, during the 1930s, uh, this uh, Bering Land Bridge crossing uh, becomes a very widely accepted theory. Um, And then we get more evidence as it goes on. Yeah. That is uh, is thanks to uh, a man named David M. Hopkins, who is a geologist of all things from uh, University of New Hampshire. his big thing was uh, he kind of took what was essentially the general idea of uh, Franz Boas, you know, four field approach to archaeology of just, you know, maybe talk to people who aren't in your fields. Oh, and, what? Uh, just ran with that and uh, went out of his way to try and bring in people from other fields to explain what he saw as a geologist <laughs> uh, in in what is, you know, the Bering Strait. <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah. Yeah, he worked with uh, some pretty famous names, including a number of uh, early uh, uh, early female scholars at the time, including uh, Mary Edwards, uh, Claudia Hoffle, and Victoria Gothicus Wolf. I can't say her middle name, but Victoria Wolf. There we go. Yeah, oh, we love early feminists. Let's go. Yes, the early uh, early female scholars. Also, giving them proper recognition for the shit that they do. Very nice. Yeah, they they deserve a lot of that recognition because you know they didn't get as much recognition as they would have today for what they did on account of the fact that they were women working with a man. So a lot of things that come out intentionally or otherwise by uh, by David Hopkins, you know, tend to focus on david hopkins doing everything when it's like no no he there's 20 other people on this paper <laughs> yeah it's not just this man leading around seven women <laughs> gallivanting around yeah yeah they uh yeah but you know it's uh, one really- of the earliest points of interdisciplinary study that we see which as you know modern archaeologists today you know me and justin particularly we like to see that that's very good because when you're in a bubble you get things like historiography where you're just obsessing over you know some minute detail that doesn't have bearing on anything else yeah and you want to have a lot of outside perspectives and viewpoints because there might be something that you don't know and someone else might and here we saw their collaboration together. What they ended up doing was they studied plants in a frozen ash layer of a Devil Mountain eruption from about 18,000 years ago. So yep. they're able to look at the ecology and study the plant level. And what they were able to see is that there was a diverse and variable array of plant life in the land bridge. And further archaeological excavations actually did what's called a, a core sample where they dig really deep down into the earth. And they do, they study pollen and um, seeds that are present in the soil. And they confirm that as well, that there was a vast array of plant life that would have more than sustained numerous populations of animals and even people. 
Yeah, and one of the big things that they did confirm, uh, even with this earlier uh, study with Hopkins, is that the vegetation was not only this diverse prairie, but that it was radically different than what was currently uh, in, say, the Alaskan area. That the Ice Age and the Bering Strait had create, you know, with the Lambridge had created its own unique environment to sustain life. And with that, you could tell that on the land bridge, it wasn't going to support the kind of animals that we generally saw in Alaska with those um, woolly mammoths and like uh, woolly elks and whatnot. So you saw different kind of animals in Mm. this strait than there. So it wasn't just like they completely moved over. Yeah, it's it's not all seals and geese. (laughs) Yeah. But then it gets to my favorite aspect of the whole theory, which is the migration of people. Yes. The most most important part of Beringia and the whole whole land bridge is that people used it to populate two entire continents worth of humans. (laughs) Yes. Which you're right. So plants, animals and people all cross that bridge from Asia to North America. And humans have populated North America for at least 16,500 years. So they've been there for quite a long time. And then they've done a lot of mitochondrial um, genetic studies on a lot of the populations in which they were actually able to see that there were three distinct migration or three distinct major migrations. And actually one of the earliest migrations that's tied to the Beringian standstill where people were stuck on the Beringian land bridge because glaciers covered most of North America. Yeah. Um, and let's be honest, it's a thousand miles wide and it's a prairie. Who's not going to settle there when it's lasting for, you know, 20,000 years? You know, like I said, yeah. above freezing and you're surrounded by glaciers on either side. It's kind of yeah. a nice place. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, the standstill, though, from 25,000 to about 20,000 years ago, um, people became genetically isolated from those in Asia, which means that you no longer saw the same intertwining of the DNA and you can actually identify a distinctive group that had broken away from that. So they had started evolving down their own trajectory. And that is the first level of that migration route. And it's one of the ways in which we're able to tell when people had migrated into um, North America, because that initial migration, that first migration has a different genetic signature than the subsequent second and third who have a more European lineage. Yeah, and uh, or, just uh, an Asian, lineage, Asian lineage. And and just I just want to I just want to step in and make sure to clarify one thing with you here. Uh uh you said uh evolving uh along their own path. Uh, be, uh I just want to make sure I make the clear that it was evolving and not devolving because there was a little bit of a glottal stop at the beginning that sounded like a D. Oh no no no. <laughs> it is like evolving. no they are not devolving into Native Americans. <laughs> so it's not a D evolution. No no they are I want to stop right there before the before the insane comments go off. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah that, uh, they are evolving. There is no devolving. They are moving forward. And <laughs> when there was a DNA study that was done between 600 Native Americans and a Stone Age skeleton, the skeleton was from uh, Maita near Lake Baikal in Siberia. And the mitochondrial DNA that was present in Native American was not found there. But the mito- the mitochondrial DNA is passed along matrilineally, so through the mother. Yeah, so it's you know you you will always have you know your mother's 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 mitochondrial DNA. So if you have a female ancestor at any point, 
who shares which you would you know, have to you know who, who shares with these people you know with, with a group of people then you have that mitochondrial dna yeah but they they have tested the standstill and they do show some lineage into siberia and into the kamchatka mm-hmm. peninsula so mm-hmm. there is some direct lineage with the mm-hmm. uh inuit and a lot of the um, siberians who live there today share a lot of lineage although granted it's about 20,000 years removed at this point but yeah and uh and additionally to that it's not just people living you know it's not just you know uh native americans on one side uh asians on the other there's also uh the people living in Berin- within beringia itself end up becoming distinct from both groups yeah. uh with uh uh was it the upward sun river site which is uh 11,000 years old and it's uh it's in Alaska, and they're a distinct. Uh, they're genetically distinct from the native rest of the Native Americans in Alaska, and from the East Asians, which scientists have taken to indicate that they were the people on Beringia when Beringia went to sink back into the sea, and just sort of walked off to one side. <laughs> you know, before you know, it was that or drowning. Well, and yeah, that also <laughs> indicates too that you have passed through populations that continued on migrating while you had some that are like, actually, you know what? It's kind of comfortable here. I'm just going to stay back. Like you guys go ahead. Yeah. Again, you have a thousand square miles. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's just, it's really interesting because then after the Beringian standstill, you begin to see the glaciers receding, um, effectively forming two routes that are very contentious in the field of archaeology although it's starting to change now the first of which was referred to as an ice-free corridor which opened up through alberta and canada because the ice sheet receded from the rocky mountains outward so that's how people initially believed that the americas were populated was through this ice-free corridor however the corridor opened about thirteen thousand five hundred years ago so it coincides roughly with the arrival of the clovis people However, Beringia is still open at this time. Beringia yeah. does not sink back into the sea for another 2,500 years uh, after yeah. this corridor opens. <laughs> or the second one, which is becoming more widely populated, is called the coastal theory, which in it theorizes that people, instead of hanging out in Beringia forever while waiting for the door to open... They got in their boats and they scuttled down the the coast until it got to a point where they can actually land and populate. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the supporting aspects of this is referred to as the Kelp Highway. And the Kelp Highway is a kelp forest that stretches from northern Japan all the way along the Pacific Rim down to about central California. Yep. So follow the food and it'll take mm-hmm. you long. Yeah. And, and additionally, a, a bit of a retroactive thing that also supports this... Uh, theory a little bit is that cultures in both uh east asia polynesia and uh the americas they tend to have uh they tend to have some fairly functional maritime traditions yes <laughs> like they they tend to they tend to have adapted their culture and you know knowledge and skills towards dealing with things like water <laughs> And one of the other things that makes that theory a little bit harder to prove, the coastal migration, is that that part of the seabed is now actually submerged beneath the water because after the glaciers rose, it flooded a lot of the land. So if there were 
any coastal campsites, they'd be inundated. And there have been a couple that were located around Vancouver um, and Washington that show some pre-Clovis evidence, although a lot of those sites tend to have some fundamental research flaws. But there is one that you were talking about that um, is very supportive. Do you want to go into that? Yes. So the one of the most widely accepted pre-Clovis sites is called Monte Verde, and it's located in um, in South America. I believe it's Chile or Argentina. It's in the mountains. But the site dates back to 14,500 years ago, which predates Clovis by 1,500 years, roughly. Yeah. And... When you start contextualizing that distance versus what we said previously with the ice-free corridor and Beringia, the timeline doesn't quite match up. Yeah. And it it would be impossible for someone to get from Beringia to uh, uh, it's southern Chile. It's yeah. southern Chile. It's it's way down there. It's it's you're basically on the southernmost tip of uh <laughs> of south america so you've crossed the entire continent <laughs> it's like fourteen thousand miles yeah. it's a enormous amount of distance and for that to be roughly about i don't know a thousand a thousand fifteen hundred years before when the ice-free corridor actually opened it becomes a lot more convincing that people got here previously somehow mm-hmm. and like i said a lot of the other sites there is evidence for a pre-Clovis society. However, Clovis isn't a culture that we are aware of. The only way we're able to identify Clovis is by their projectile points. They make these beautiful uh, fluted points that are massive and mm-hmm. rare, but we don't know of any evidence prior to that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's you know, it's a technology rather than an actual cultural you know, actual fully fledged culture. It's sort of like saying, and these are the saddle people. These are all the yeah. people who have saddles. <laughs> just like, that's like two thirds of everyone. <laughs> and it doesn't help that you can also, um, you know, teach people different kinds of people trade with other people for tools and whatnot. Um, and you're like, even back then you're going to have, cross-cultural yeah. contact anyways yeah so yeah. Yeah. just Thousand. going on like one kind of tool is very hard to be like ah yes this one culture yeah, yeah. yeah. in in more modern terms this is the ipod people <laughs> right yeah. the this iPhone is, you know, we're, we're, tra- <laughs> yeah, we're, we're tracking the presence of i of uh of iphones and treating it like that's the entire cultural people here and it's like possibly not but yeah they do have something in common yeah uh, but it's just it's very interesting because there's a lot of um, a lot of evidence that's starting to come out that shows that it's pretty, pretty likely and almost guaranteed that people were in the Americas before the ice free corridor even opened, which the only logical thought is through a coastal migration in the Kelp Highway. And we know that people were adapted to that. We've seen in campsites that people who were in Beringia even would utilize the kelp. They would actually farm it. So, you know, it's not very, uh, it's not unlikely that people were traveling along the coast and then got to Beringia and went, hey, you know, this actually isn't half bad. <laughs> yeah. And so, some of the people in, uh, you know, who's, you know, who inhabited Alaska during, uh, during this period too, they, 
you know, they have their own distinct technological culture as well with uh, the Paleo-Arctic tradition they've talked about. It's, it's a distinct, it's a, it's about, uh, it starts about 14,000 years ago and it's, it's uh, distinct from the Paleo-Indian and the uh, Clovis traditions that we were talking about with, uh, with those particular tool points. Uh, uh, and it's got some, it's a lot of stone tools jargon that I personally don't understand. A lot of, a lot of things are bifacial. Um, so I'm going to assume that that means that they are like two-faced from the Batman. Well, so bifacial working on stone tools, you when you are crafting the stone tools, you are knocking chips off from both sides of the face. And it creates this serrated edge, like a knife, like a, a steak knife. So bifa bifacial working is really, really intricate technology, and that shows a high level of craftsmanship of the, of the flint nappers, but that also shows that they're sharing that technology and actually the bifacial working is something that does evolve eventually out of the Bringian standstill because in um, Siberia, thanks to global warming, uh, a lot of sites are actually thawing out of the permafrost, including a lot of mammoth kill sites and a lot of um, other big game kill sites that are showing kind of that transition from um, unifacial working, which is like single face to bifacial mm -hmm. Uh, it is just incredible. And microblading is specific uh, napping technology that creates these tiny little microblades. Yeah. It is very fun to make stone tools. Uh, if anyone ever gets the chance to make them, I definitely suggest it. It's very fun. You're going to want to bring Band-Aids because uh, you're definitely going to cut yourself. I made uh, obsidian stone tools and I had more band-aids than I did hands at the end of it, but it is very cool uh, to do and to use because uh, you, I mean, yeah, you maybe I, need like three tools, four tools just to get it done and they're mainly bones and other rocks. You could buy a kit online. I've been looking at it because I want to. Made uh, made this in like 2015. Uh, it's a uh, really bad scraper. You can see just where I was napping along the edge to sort of make it. I do have this around me. I have another one that's even worse than this. I got, I got worse on the second try. This is actually the good one. But yeah, you so can let see me go see if I can find my obsidian. Yeah, you see, just I, I have my along. bag of flakes. I made a ton good. of flakes, but I put my projectile point in a box in my closet. Got a pretty good grip, you know, like this. And you just sort of take this bladed edge here and you just sort of scrape, scrape, <laughs> scrape, scrape. Uh, very, uh, very, uh, very anti-thumb uh, making this. Uh, just. <laughs> You will smack so many different parts of yourself. Well, maybe we could do that as a separate content piece of us flint napping, because that'd be interesting. But um, flint napping is cool because you make these tools, and with obsidian specifically, it's actually sharper than modern uh, medical equipment to the point where they're in certain surgeries they actually use obsidian tools because they are so sharp and so precise. Yeah, so I, I found a scraper that I made. I don't know if you can see it very well, but this is obsidian. I have to keep it in uh, specific cloth so that I don't, like, cut through things. Yes. Uh, that I have to, like, unfold from it. Uh, I should have another one. So I'm here. Hold on. I'm going to mute so that the crinkling doesn't. Yeah, sorry for going dark and you got a little bit of a... <laughs> Well, if I knew we were doing show and tell, I would have brought my stuff out. And for those yeah, of you who are listening, one. 
on Spotify or Anchor or Apple Podcast. Oh, yeah. We are currently showing off stone tools that were made. Um, if you would like to see this, be sure to check us out on our YouTube channel at Historical Humans. There's plug. another thin one that I made. Uh, this one cut me a lot because I was making a kind of almost serrated edge with it. I don't know if you can really see it, mm -hmm. but yeah, I was I was very excited uh, to learn how to do this. Uh, so excited that I consistently cut myself, and I feel like I'm going to do that again, just handling it right now. Were you wearing gloves? No, we were not wearing gloves. Uh, we. <laughs> We made these stone, uh, these stone tools during my foundations of archaeology. Oh, no, don't grab that, sweetie. That's sharp. Um, sorry, my cat really wanted to sniff the obsidian. Uh, we, we made it during our uh, foundations of archaeology class, and uh, our professor was like, let's theme it as if it's a zombie apocalypse. We'll use archaeology to survive. Uh, <laughs> So learning how to make stone tools and old pottery that was done uh, by a lot of early humans um, and specifically uh, Native Americans uh, at the time was what we did. So I've, I've shot with atlatls. <laughs> I made these stone tools, our own pottery is very fun. The atlatls are fun. <laughs> but uh, not enough equipment for an entire class to uh, be properly prepared for this. So a lot of band-aids. I was gonna try and find my uh, my touristy uh, obsidian arrowhead that they uh, give out to tourists mm -hmm. to give Justin a heart attack on uh, how artificially created it is. Because it is, it is, it is, hor it is, it is a horrible, it was a horribly uh, kitsch version. There is no such thing as a ethically sourced arrowhead. It was looted. No, no, it's not loot. It's literally, literally they took Rob Sidian. They took a late. They took like a laser cutter, cut oh, out man. an arrow, threw it in a bin. It looks so horrible. But while you guys were searching okay. for that, I actually did find my genetic data that I was mentioning, oh, yeah. and yeah. they took genetic samples from fifty-four indigenous uh, Americans and from seventeen different Siberian groups, and uh, they genotyped them. And I'm not going to get into the genotypical um, jargon because it gets very heavy. But it was determined that there were three streams of Asian gene flow and that most descended entirely from a singular group called the First Americans. However, speakers of the Aleut languages, where the Aleutian Islands get their names, get most of their ancestry from a second stream. And the third stream is for all the not Dene people's uh, speaking groups from Canada they inherited theirs from the third stream of settlers. Um, the information shows that the initial group is the one that headed southbound, presumably by the coast, all the way down to South America, which is supported by evidence that there were almost no reversals except for one case in Panama. They were able to find a case of genetic reversal. Interesting. Very interesting. So it's, it, it, it's showing that, you know, it wasn't just one group that got off and exploded into a separate population, but this was a consistent, continual thing that happened a couple of times. Um, one of the other things that I did a lot of research in and did a lot of studying is reconstructing the paleo environment. So the landmass and uh, column, you mentioned it briefly earlier, but the Beringian land bridge, 
the Beringian land bridge. That's really redundant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Bering land bridge, Bering Strait, Beringia. Um, but showed that it was primarily a shrub tundra, which would have supported small campsites, uh, smaller um, foraging. Mm-hmm. But it showed that it could actually sustain a population. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it was. It's you know, small game hunter gatherers. You know, you're you're dealing with gophers and ferret type creatures. You know, yeah. rabbits and things like that where it's like hmm, yeah pretty small oh look one a bush of the, with berries <laughs> one of the interesting things um i saw while reading was that they would burn animal bones mm-hmm. and one of the things that you had to do with that is you would have the wood from the shrubs and you would heat up the animal fat and use that um to get like a really high temperature to um use the bones as like fuel for the fire to keep warm at night. And I thought that was so interesting that they had found these charred bones as evidence in, in archeological sites. Yeah. It's really interesting. Some of the ways in which they adapted to the local environment and to the, um, to everything else, because one of the other things that they studied with the vegetation is that before the last glacial maximum, which is the blast ice age, um, that the area was more of a birch heath graminoid tundra with minimum step elements. And that's a really fancy way of saying that it was sparsely populated, but it had a lot of shrubbery um, and that it was there and that there were a lot of aquatic ponds that had plants um, and that they found a lot of insects that were indicative of the climate. Um, it just showed that the insects, um, the insects showed that the summer temperatures were actually warmer than they are in current day Alaska. So it was a very, very inviting climate. Yeah, especially when your options are this or Alaska. <laughs> yes. Well, and a lot of archaeologists are currently studying this by going into uh, the Bering Strait and taking core samples deep down into the soil. Um, and trying to recreate the climate because one of the ways we could recreate the climate is looking at the palynology, looking at the soil samples, measuring contents of nitrogen and carbon, and just seeing what that environment would have looked like. Because humans, as smart as we are as creatures, we tend to follow a lot of basic um, steps throughout history of like, we look for inviting environments. We look for where food production is the easiest, where there's a lot of options for food. Yeah, we follow patterns because we want to live. (laughs) (laughs) We prefer surviving and eating. Like the people who did not follow these patterns typically died and did not live long enough to really be people. (laughs) That's why we became omnivores. So we'd have more options to survive. But it is shown that during this time period, the majority of the diet was megafauna. They were eating mammoth, uh, you know elk they were eating anything that they could catch and kill and that's honestly reflected in their tools because their spear points are massive and one of my favorite things is you see the spear points you think they're on a little spear and that these people are running up to the mammoth like jabbing it they were smart they fucking launch it like adolatles like i said you know 
And use a ballista to hunt a squirrel. Here we go. It's <laughs> <laughs> catapult. Not on par with some of the logic we have going on with all those uh, recreations where the guy's got the spear point, you know, and, like the spear length is shorter than he is. And he's running up to the leg of the mammoth like, ah, it's like, that is. No, those are the people who died. <laughs> yeah, no, they... they get a Darwin Award. That's what they get. They don't get to eat. How far do you think that they could fling a uh, projectile using an atlatl accurately? Accurately? Like oh, you can you can do least. it really far. Yeah, uh, if you had to guess a number, how far would you think? If I had to guess, I don't want to sound stupid. Um, give it 50 I have a really minimum. terrible death perception. Uh, All right, so not you, a functioning person. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, I, I I would say you know, several, several yards, more than several yards. So I want to be vague about it. Several yards. And then we've got 50 yards. Yeah. And unfortunately you are both wrong. I said at least 50. <laughs> Modern archeologists who have recreated atlatls and who have studied the method. And again, cultures that still actively use them for hunting. Cause there's still hunter gatherers out there. Yeah. You can actually fire a projectile over a hundred yards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to go like too long. At least, yeah. at least 50 from my own experience of missing at 20 feet. <laughs> yes. There's some people that claim you could get over 200 yards and I've, I haven't seen that accurately supported, but I wouldn't doubt it. But these projectiles were able to go a long, long way. And it just, it's also interesting too, because you see a lot of field processing of mammoth bones. Like you think of people killing and eating mammoth. Well, what they don't realize is there's usually a kill site, there's usually a butchering site, and then there's usually an inhabitation site. And as you go along, the mammoth gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. But you also, like, um, killing a mammoth, like, that allows you to have, to feed a lot more people. But you can also have, like, leftovers, because there, there are ways to store meat, even back then, with the salting and the, the smoking. Um there's a name for it there is and i am trying to think of it it is like not on the tip of my tongue but on like the back corner of my tongue i'm thinking of it i can't remember pansawan i'm so not sure uh but it's basically like creating beef jerky yeah um, it, which then fun. helps with you know not having a ton of food well, and a lot of times, too, the whole animal was used. So, like, the yeah. hides were used for clothing, which was phenomenal because it was built for cold environments. So they were using that to insulate themselves from the cold. They would use the tusks and carve uh, awls out of them, which were used for stitching and, uh, and clothing creation. They burned a lot of the bones because, you know, you kill a mammoth, there's a lot of bone. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, you can boil the bones before you burn them so that you can get all of that uh, good, uh, what is it called? Bone marrow? Yeah. Because those make fantastic soups. Um, and then you can use them for logs. So you can use the fat for the for boiling, um, for cleaning, uh, for taste, for a bunch of different stuff. Uh, lanterns too. Mm -hmm. yep lantern well i don't i don't know if lanterns were a thing around then but yeah well, you know, yeah, this they... is burning fat at this point <laughs> yeah yeah they, you see a lot of that too yeah oh go on what 
was just going. I didn't have anything to say. I just oh, oh. moved my hand across my face because my hair was, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I heard you talking, but effectively, you see a lot of the same lifestyles with um, descending communities um, like the Inuit in northern Alaska who live a very similar lifestyle to how they would have back then of utilizing the environment, utilizing the resources around you. Fishing would have been a heavy importance. So there's a lot of the sites are actually near bodies of water or near coastlines. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously I mentioned they utilized the kelp a lot. They utilized animals. So it wasn't just big game hunter. And it's kind of frustrating because that's a relic of about 1950s archeology span where it was yeah. like, man is big game hunter. Man would walk up and stab a, a, a mammoth and we celebrated and ate it. Man strong, big, strong man. It's like, mm -hmm. calm down. Calm yeah. down, shouty. Yeah. But yeah, you know. This is this is the Beringia landscape, you know, a uh, land bridge. We, you know, cross through some shrubberies and whatnot. Oh, God damn it! <laughs> I've been I've been refusing to make the the Monty Python references very loudly, but yeah. Uh, you know, pass through the shrubberies, and you know, this is how, you know, the first Native Americans and most Native Americans crossed over. Uh, into the Americas was following along, you know, either the coast or the overland part of this, you know, of this land bridge, you know, no Allen's required. Now, can we talk some of the fringe theories real quick? Because some you want to talk about all the Allen's? Yeah. The Allen's in the room. Why do, why do we got to talk about the Allen's in the room? As, as an Allen named person myself, I don't think we should. No Allen's <laughs> Ignore required. them. But like, there were some theories that, um, <laughs> God, one of the most ridiculous ones and absurd ones was that in a Stone Age group from France sailed across the Atlantic to cross into North America because they found a couple of um, a couple of projectile points that vaguely mimicked their tool sets. No, 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 no. Here's the, the best fringe one. Here's the best fringe one. Uh, Jesus Christ, uh, after dying <laughs> on the cross, uh, you know, after he's officially dead, he's been resurrected, he's died for the sins, comes back, leads like God knows who it varies from like Templars to uh, Jews to just random people he found to North America, where they established these vast civilizations of mound builders and tool users, and then. You know, some people go savage and kill everyone. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need people to, to calm down with, with that theory. I just, I, <laughs> there's so many times you read of, like, the, the old um, missionary people being like, and we entered, like, uh, what what is now, like, North America or South America, and they're like, and we have found Eden. There are also these savages here, but we found Eden. And I'm like, just shut up, please. God, why do we have to read this? Um, hey, Ethiopia was the kingdom of Solomon until it suddenly wasn't. <laughs> there is a lot of very interesting, uh, interesting things, uh, you know, interesting theories for how things happen. Well, in a lot of those theories, real quick, just to kind of close the door yeah. on that, close the door before we get into the Allens. <laughs> a, a lot of them end up there. A lot of them are rooted in racism, and I think it's yeah. important to address because. While it may not seem overtly racist just to think that or to have those theories, what it implies is it implies that the indigenous groups that have lived there here and have subsisted 
wouldn't be able to if not for European invention. It's a very Eurocentric point yeah. of view. It's not implying that. It's outright stating it. It goes so far as to outright state that these people can't even stack mud into a mound of earth. <laughs> like you literally yeah. can't yeah. bury people without European help, according to these uh, theories, or extraterrestrial help if you want to oh go for God. the batshit crazy ones. There's We're not also... going to the pyramids. We're, we've had pyramids. We're not going there. There is. There's also the the kind of racist ideas that um, the Native Americans that lived there were somehow pure and innocent and untouched. Um, and that's also racist in itself because you're not acknowledging the full human beings that they are with their own complexities and morals and whatnot. Um, yeah. Which is also a very frustrating thing when you read things that say it's like, oh, it's Eden or these savages because they can either be demons and savages or they can be like these untouched innocent beings it does not allow for kind of reality and them being their own people yeah my personal favorite for debunking all that you know that dichotomy is the aztecs the aztecs built beautiful massive monuments uh of their own accord they were also so deeply unpopular with everyone around them that the second there was a chance to start a war with them that might win half of the tribes in the vicinity immediately <laughs> turned on them. Yeah. We can talk about it. So we you know, can talk about it's, it. You know, they're not innocent and they're not barbarians. They're a culture. Yeah, they're a culture with good and bad in it like every other culture. Yeah, um, and they, yeah that, that is and the... the people who uh, made them came Bering. across the Bering Land Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> Full circle. That is the that Bering bridge. Land Bridge in our, in our episode for this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, um, I guess, yeah, that's a good point. We can tie a bow on it. If you guys enjoyed this episode, be sure to drop a like down below and subscribe for additional content. If you're listening to us on one of our audio-based platforms, be sure to rate us. Because that's something that we we could definitely use some more of. Mm -hmm. And give us suggestions of what you want to see in the future. Um, Any topics that you're really interested in learning more about or uh, things that you want to deep dive further in uh, as well, either from this episode, previous episodes, or stuff that we haven't even talked about yet. And uh, please be sure to subscribe to us if you haven't yet, or if you have, and for whatever reason, YouTube or another platform has unsubscribed you, as has been known to happen recently. Uh, Please make sure you're subscribed. That helps us out a lot, and it's uh, such a small thing you can do. Uh, Also, like the video so we know that you liked it. Uh, It's great to hear feedback. Yep, and uh, one last thing is uh, in the uh, upcoming... uh, in the upcoming weeks, uh, our next topic, uh, what is our next topic going to be? I believe it is Juneteenth. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do believe our next, so. Yeah, our next topic will be Juneteenth, so you're going to get to hear us talk about that next time on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> yep, and then after that, we're talking Sappho of Lesbos, our our gay pride episode. Yep, yeah, the world's first lesbian uh According to history. <laughs> According to history. Yeah. We found the first one. Yeah. And uh, thank you guys for watching us. Like, this is halfway through our first season. So it's huge. Yeah. It has been half a year, six months, our anniversary. And uh, we've had some highs. We've had some lows. We've had some growing pains. But it's been, uh, mm-hmm. it's been quite a ride so far. Yep. All righty. Uh, Have a good day. Yep. See you guys.